doing a series uh, in Colossians for the last uh, three months, and we are in chapter 2, and we are looking at Jesus. We're looking at Jesus as the supreme Savior, as the all-sufficient one. We're looking at, at Jesus as the person who meets our needs in our life in, ev in every single way. And uh, why we, I chose the book of Colossians is because it's such a relevant book for us today. We live in a pluralistic society in which we are told that all religions are the same, and at the end they all lead to the same place anyway, so we should just relax and kind of get on with each other. And this is not what the Bible says, all right? <laughs> the Bible says that there's one person called Jesus who is the full revelation of Christ, a full revelation of God, and as we get to know Him, we get to know who God is, and we, we learn together who God is through the life of Jesus. And so I don't want to get distracted this morning, but I have spoken in the past about pluralism and how in our country in the 1960s there was a guy called John Hick who popularized this idea and said, actually, what we need to do is forget about Jesus as being the incarnate Son of God. Just let's get rid of that. And once we've got rid of that, we can then see how much religions have in common and all different faiths have lots in common. And so if you go into the street and you ask someone, they'll say, oh, no, all, 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 all religions are basically the same. And, of course, this idea has been challenged subsequent to that, where people have said, well, actually, that's not honest, because many the religions all have different aims, they all have different outcomes, and they're all aiming in different places, and it's, this kind of thinking has been challenged. But largely, it's still in our culture. And it wasn't Paul's culture as well. The ancient world was full of gods, all claiming equality and all saying, well, they're all the same. And, and Paul writes this letter to the Colossian church to encourage them to say, actually, there is a supreme one who is above all, who is the creator of all, who's the, who's the, the, who was outside of time, and he's revealed himself fully in the person of Jesus, and we can know God completely because of the person of Jesus. And so he points this, they paints this picture of Christ, who Christ is, the magnificence of Christ. And we've been looking at that. And so we're going to look at the first verses of chapter 2 this morning. All right? Is that okay? And I will try and be 20 minutes, half an hour. So pray for me. All right? Here we go. Colossians 2, first five verses. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, the mystery of God, fully revealed in the person of Jesus, in whom, in, in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And I say this in order that no one will delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So your, your version might say something slightly different in terms of the translation. But here again, Paul is lifting up Jesus and he says, In Christ, who is the mystery of God, in Christ, all wisdom and all treasures of knowledge are found in the person of Jesus. And I want to look at that with you this morning. And so he's continuing to write about his ministry here. We know this 
portion is connected with the end of chapter 1. Remember at the end of chapter 1, he talks about his sufferings, Paul does in verse 24. He speaks about his main task, his main mission, his goal is to be a minister of the gospel in verse 25 and 20 to, to, uh, 27. And he speaks about his method, how he, how he does that. Remember, we looked at this, him we proclaim, admonishing all, encouraging all. That's the method that Paul uses. He preaches Jesus. He disciplines, he admonishes, he encourages people through the preaching of Jesus. And then he says, that's, I don't do this by my own power, but it's the power of Christ in me that works. And I am cooperating with the power of Christ in me. That's the end of chapter 1. And now he continues to try and encourage this church. And he gets much more personal. And we'll find now, as we look in the next couple of chapters, Paul gets much more personal and intimate with these guys. And he speaks to them in particular. And he says in verse 2, I want to encourage you guys in particular. And then these magnificent verses, which are really a summary of his ambition for them. He says, that your hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the riches of full assurance of the mystery of God, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I, I want to say to you, in these few sentences, we can see why people so loved Paul. People loved Paul. And I want to say there are too many modern caricatures of Paul that I've seen over the years as Paul, this apostle who is angular, he's forbidding, he's unnecessarily intellectual, he's dogmatic. People present him as indifferent to women, as uh, ungracious to his opponents. And I want to say to you, those views, those who support such ideas of Paul, are a painful commentary on just how presently our culture is unfamiliar and ignorant of his letters. Because when you read his letters, when you take time to see what he's saying and the heart with which he is saying that, that is not Paul of the Bible. Here, you can see why people love Paul. You can see his heart, his encouragement to this church. These people he's never even met. He's anxious to help Epaphras who's planted the church. And people have come into the church and said, Epaphras hasn't preached the gospel. You need to add philosophy to what he has uh, presented you with. You need to add Jewish tradition to what he's presented with you. And you need to add to the work of Jesus to see it fully completed. And Paul comes to the defense of Epaphras from the prison that he's writing from in Rome and says, well, let me just help you here. And so you can imagine that uh, it's a risk for Paul to do this. I've discovered this as well over the years. Like I said, I'm, uh, I'm 54 now, so I have some life experience that... Um, Misunderstandings of other people often grow when we don't meet them face to face. When we form our opinion about someone from the opinion of someone else. Yeah? So you, don't have, you haven't actually met the person, but you, you kind of allow your opinion about them to be informed by other people who say, well, you know, Ant, he's like this. And so when you come to meet me, you think, well, you're like this. And then perhaps you find I'm not like that. Or it could be you. Yeah? So we allow our opinions to be informed by what others say of us. And this was happening in the, in the Colossian church. The very danger was present in the Colossian church. And so Paul, who knew he could be misunderstood and who had never met these people, he writes to them in a, in a very open-hearted way to try and encourage them. And it's in this context that these words that we read this morning really spring to life. And he wants, Paul wants them to know he's personally interested he uses this phrase, there are many of you I have not yet met face to face, but I want to encourage you. I want my heart to encourage you. 
That's his, that's his motivation. And he says, I'm concerned with all of those in the Lycius Valley, especially the church in Laodicea and those that I haven't met face to face. And so there's this open-heartedness from Paul. He loves people. He loves the gospel. He wants all people to know the freedom that is in Christ. And so here I want to give you two things that he wants them to understand this morning. First of all, he wants them to know that all spiritual knowledge and understanding is in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he goes so far as to say that there's no knowledge outside of Jesus. Our world is very interested in knowledge. Knowledge is power. Knowledge, knowledge gets you ahead. And so our, our world is very, very interested in power, uh, uh, um, uh, in knowledge. Our world is interested in university degrees. I'm not against education. I'm not against any of those things I'm studying at the moment. But our, our, our culture puts a lot of emphasis on university degrees, doesn't it? And getting a degree from the right kind of university is very important. And that really is the kind of thing that goes back to ancient Greeks who loved knowledge. Our culture has been influenced a lot by our Greek thinking, uh, Mario. <laughs> and the Greeks loved wisdom, gnosis. They loved knowledge. And so they, they put a lot of effort into philosophy and understanding the universe. And uh, this simply goes, our culture's love of this goes back to that origin. And Paul says here, though, he says, the gospel is something completely different. He says it's a mystery. Do you notice he uses that word? He says the mystery of God is revealed in the person of Jesus. And in the person of Jesus, all knowledge and wisdom and truth is revealed to us. And you need special revelation to penetrate the wisdom of God. That's got nothing to do with your intellect. It's got to do with love and kindness and patience and perseverance. And few people find that. That's what Paul is saying. To understand the things of God, there's a special revelation that needs to come by the Spirit that goes beyond intellect, that goes beyond just understanding with your brain. It's something completely different that God wants to do by His Spirit inside of you. And so he uses this magnificent phrase, in him, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I put it to you, even in the secular world, this is true. If you go and read history, any, any, any history book, and you look at any advances that we have made in the last 400 years that are radical advances in medicine, in science, in a whole lot of dis disciplines, often the people that found those things out were people of faith that wanted to explore the world that God had created. And so they made all these incredible discoveries in science and medicine. And in our country, if you have an honest look in the 1800s, labor law, equality for women, uh, orphans and widows, work like that, all started by Christians who understood the gospel and the liberation of Christ on the inside of them, and they wanted to live that out. Don't let our culture fool you. Go and read for yourself. It's incredibly encouraging to see how Christians have made a difference. And so he says, even in all wisdom is hidden in Jesus. The other thing I want to say to you is this, as he's talking about wisdom, he says it's hidden. Do you notice that? It's not obvious. It's hidden. He says um, it's, it's hidden because no one finds it unless they are close to Jesus. To understand and to have this wisdom in your life, you have to be close to Jesus. You have to know him to find this wisdom for your life. There's an intimacy that is needed to find this wisdom for your life. See, our world has conferences. It has conventions. You can go to a Star Trek convention. You can go to a wrestling convention. You can go to a poverty convention. And sometimes those are good. Sometimes those are good. 
But what is the Christian claim? The Christian claim is that actually in Christ we have a revelation of sin that is needed to help fix the problems of the world. We have a revelation in Christ that actually we can't rescue ourselves, that we need rescue. This is the Christian message. We can't save ourselves. We can make the world better in many areas, but we can't save the world. Only Christ can save the world. Only Christ in us is the hope of glory. This is what Paul has been saying. And yet in the, in the church we can know the joy of being rescued. We can know the joy of a clean conscience. How many of you are embarrassed about things that you did many years ago? Anyone? Yes, I've done some stupid things. This is the wonder of the gospel. Our conscience is wiped clean. The guilt is gone. Why? Because I've worked really hard to do it? No, because Christ has done it for me. His blood has washed me. He's washed my mind. He's washed my heart. He's, I'm cleansed. I have an, I'm a new cr creature in Him. I'm a new creation in Him. So Paul, this is what he's trying to say. There's a unique position that we can enjoy. Uh, there's the pleasure of having God work, working powerfully in our lives in Jesus. There's wisdom. There's righteousness, sanctification, final redemption in Jesus. This is what Paul is saying. In Him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are fully revealed to us. All these things are possible as we are in Christ. And it's hidden from everyone else that doesn't know Jesus. But when you know Jesus, this mystery invades your life and transforms you. That's good news. That's what Paul He's trying to get us to understand. And so we have this thing of the gospel that is um, so simple that even the smallest child can understand the gospel. And yet at the same time, uh, even the most clever person never fully understands the gospel. It's a life-changing thing that continues for our whole lives that God transforms us and shows us more and more and more. And so in the church, we can enjoy this deep companionship with God's people. We can know this profound joy of worshiping God together because the mystery of Christ is being revealed to us. Are you with me? I find this incredibly encouraging. And so in the gospel, the journey that we have with Jesus, we, we never get to the end of it. It gets more and more encouraging. It gets brighter and brighter. And I love the old hymn writers. They use phrases like this, um, the unsearchable richness of Christ or uh, the unspeakable joy of Christ. Isn't that right? These are the things that we get to know in the church that we grow in. And those things are all freely available to those that are in Jesus. And they are hidden from those that do not yet know Him. That's the first thing that Paul wants to get them to understand. All spiritual wisdom and understanding is powerfully abundant to us in Christ. And secondly, Paul wants them to protect, be protected from false teaching. Notice that verse he says, I say this all in order that no one will delude you with plausible arguments. Plausible arguments. That's the problem, isn't it? It sounds like it can be true. It's plausible. That could be true. I'm saying to you this morning that I think as Christians, we must be able to think for ourselves. Everyone with me? I'm not against education. I'm not against study. I'm for those things. But you must be able to think for yourself. People can be amazingly gullible, especially Christians in the church. Now, I come from Africa, right? And so I'm saying this with that background. In Africa, there are millions of preachers, all with a ministry, all doing something that they say is extraordinary. And so I want to put it to you that you need to be wise. You need to be sharp as a Christian. That just because someone has a really cleverly designed Instagram account and sounds like they are 
you know, come with a new angle on some kind of teaching or uh, about Israel or deliverance or intercession or some kind of family topic. There are a thousand things that people build ministries around. Paul says, I want you to be wise. I'm saying to you, I want you to be wise. We can always find a few scriptures to support our thing that we're trying to do and get our point across. And often we see ministries that choose a couple of things, hundreds of people going off to these seminars, which are not really about the gospel at all. They're just someone's thing. Paul says, think about what you're hearing. I'm saying to you this morning, as I'm preaching, think about what I'm saying. Paul says, this the message that you are hearing, is this the gospel that you first heard? Is it saying to you that Jesus is sufficient for everything in your life? Or is it saying that you need Jesus plus this, plus this, plus this, plus this, plus this, and then you'll be okay? And normally I found about these ministries is that actually they ask for money at the end of the day. And they say, actually, you can't do this. With, you, know, you, you won't truly be delivered unless you go through this deliverance method. I say to you, we are free in Christ. When you are saved, you are delivered instantly, always, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light, and you are set free forever. That's the freedom of gospel. It's available to everyone without paying, without, without any kind of effort. It's free to you in Christ. Do we need to help people? Yes, we do. Do we need to pray for people? Yes, we do. But it's free for everyone. Jesus has done it for all of us. So I want to encourage you, as you try and walk through this life yourself, and you get exposed to multiple hundreds of ministries, I want to ask you to ask yourself a couple of questions. Here they are. Does this ministry work with local churches, or does it set itself up as a rival to local churches? Good question to ask. Second, does this ministry take a lot of money for itself? It's always about money at the end of the day. Thirdly, does this ministry work by enlarging and expounding large chunks of Scripture, or does this ministry take one verse and try and get you to kind of buy into one verse and apply it to the whole Scripture? Are you with me? Six months after this ministry has been at work, are people more humble? Do they love Jesus more? Or they are more concerned about the specifics of this ministry rather than the kingdom of God? Scripture says this, by the fruit you will know people. I found this, fruit takes time. Sometimes five years, sometimes ten years, but eventually you see the fruit. And we are called to bear good fruit. Oh, don't judge people, Ant, you say. Don't judge people. You know, we, we, we mustn't judge. We must love everybody. That's true. But if you're honest with yourself, you make judgments every single day of your life. You make judgments about what is right, what is wrong, what you're aiming at, how you want to parent your kids. You make judgments all the time. And I'm saying to you, the Scripture needs to be our judge in all things. What does the Scripture say? If we are going to be people of the Word, what does the Scripture say? Does all of our life conform to the Scripture? If it does, we embrace it. If it doesn't, we don't. Are you with me? I'm aware this is a bit challenging this morning. Okay, I'm not trying to scare anyone. You see, Paul commends in, a, in Acts chapter 17, he commends a, a bunch of people from Berea. 
the Bereans. And he says this. He says that uh, they were to be commended because they examined the Scripture all of their days to see what was true. You and I can know what is true. We can know truth if we'll, if we'll put the effort in to discover for ourselves through the Scripture what God has for us. Are you with me? Don't be duped. Don't be impressed by the packaging of Instagram, all right? I love Instagram, but our world is consumed with packaging. What does it look like? Does it look nice and flashy? Oh, it must be true if it looks cool. Well, ladies, I want to ask you this. Kim Kardashian might have the biggest Instagram account. Do you want your kids to grow up like her? Do you want your, your, your daughters to become Kim Kardashian? Do you? Just because there are millions of followers doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Are you with me? Be sharp. Be wise. Discover for yourself what God has for you in His kingdom. And live that out. Don't be duped. Thirdly, Paul says all of this. He says, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. I found this, you know, when people correct me or people um, discipline me, my normal reaction is, they don't love me. Have you found that in your life? When someone says, no, well, I think that needs to change. You, you don't love me. And sometimes we put that onto God as well, isn't it? We, we, when God disciplines us and says, I want that thing to change in your life. Oh, God, you don't love me. No, no. Paul's, Paul's saying here, he's saying all these things to encourage them. And you notice the last verse, he says, actually, I'm rejoicing over you. I'm happy with you. I love what God is doing in your life. Why do we always take correction as people don't love me or God doesn't love me? The two are possible together. Yeah, Paul says, I'm doing this to encourage you. I'm doing this because I'm rejoicing over you. But I don't want you to be duped by other guys that are saying a whole lot of stuff. Think for yourself. Are you with me? Both are possible. So he's encouraging them. He's saying, think for yourself. Think about whether the gospel is still central to everything that is being preached. And now Paul develops this point a little bit further. I've got some time still. Verse 6 to 8. I'm going to look at that briefly. Just say three things out of this, and then we're going to break bread together. So he's now developing this point about the gospel a little bit further, and he says, Therefore, as you receive Jesus, so walk in Him, rooted and built up and established in the faith. Anyone being part of this church, you should know this verse off my heart. Why? Because this is where we got our rooted, planted, fruitful from. Here it is. Colossians chapter 2. First couple of verses, rooted in Christ, planted in family, fruitful in life. It comes right out of the Scripture. And so he's developing this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by a hollow philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. You're getting it? So Paul, he wants to remind them. He says, I want to remind you, this is how your salvation began. Therefore, as you received Christ, we receive salvation. It's a gift that is lavished on our lives, and we simply receive it. We get it as a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Our salvation is focused on a person. It's not focused on doing anything. It's focused on a person, Jesus. And as we receive Him, we receive the gift of salvation that He gives. You might say I'm getting a little bit technical now, but I think it's important. I don't think it's good to say, I found Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus found you. (laughs) 
You see, the starting point is all wrong. I found Jesus. You know, I made the decision. No, no, no. The scripture says you were never looking for Jesus. He found you and he lavished his gift on you. And all you did was say, yes, thank you, Lord. It's a gift. I receive it. It's a very different starting point. Because if you start at the point of, I must make this decision for Christ and I must do this, you know what ends up? Your life is very hard because you never know how much is enough. You never know how hard you need to carry on trying. Isn't that true? When you receive a gift that is lavished on you, you just get it, you receive it, and you walk in that gift. And Jesus says right from the beginning, I am pleased with you. You are my son. You don't need to do anything else in your life. You've done enough. If you want to do stuff now, do it because you love me. That's the only reason you do stuff. Not to earn salvation, not to please God. I'm already pleased with you. I'm already a good father who loves you with all of my heart, and I want the best for you. And all you need to do is walk with me, and I'll whisper in your ear and say, Nick, I want you to do this. Stuart, please, don't go that way. Go this way. That's all we have to do. It takes the stress out of living. It takes the striving out of living. It takes the fear out of living when we walk by the Spirit because we are sons and daughters and we've received this gift that God has lavished. Are you with me? Amen. And Paul reminds them. He says, I want to remind you that's what you've received. That's where it starts. Then he says, um, he is our wisdom. Christ is our righteousness. And then he reminds you, I want to remind you again, we're not saved by good works. We were saved by a person, right? Jesus. Not by good works. We're not saved by our morality. We are saved by Jesus. We are not saved by joining a church. It's quite fashionable now to this, uh, this thing coming back into the church that actually the church is the new Israel and that you get saved by just joining the church. I say garbage. You don't get saved by joining the church, the new Israel. You get saved by a person, Jesus. You don't even get saved by weeping over your sin. Your sin is terrible. My sin is terrible. You don't get saved by weeping over your sin. You don't get saved by an emotional experience. Oh, I heard a preacher and I was really moved and I went up and you know, now I'm saved. No, no. You get saved by a person, Jesus, when he reveals himself to you. And he lavishes his gift and you recognize that gift. That's when you get saved. You don't get saved by an emotional experience. You don't get saved by singing songs. You don't even get saved by theology. You get saved by a person. His name is Jesus. And he lavishes his love on you, and you recognize that, and you get saved. That's it. You get saved by a person, the person of Jesus. That's what Paul reminds him of. And then he says, after you've received this amazing gift, your salvation must continue and develop. Notice what he says. He says, as you receive Jesus, walk in him, rooted and built up in him. So let me use a very simple illustration, and I'm coming into land now, I promise you. Uh, a Christian is a person who has been rooted in Jesus. That's why we have our, our little phrase, rooted in Christ. Christ is the soil. The Christian is the plant. And if you know anything about bi biology, the life and the food and the energy of the soil find their way up into the plant, don't they? As the roots draw all that energy and that life up. And it's exactly the same for you and me as Christian believers. We are rooted. Our roots are in Jesus, the person of Jesus. And all his energy, all his life, all of who he is flows up into us simply because we are rooted in him. Man, that is a powerful thing. And so that's why we say, the Scripture says, that when we are saved, we are placed in Christ. That's why it uses that language. You are in Jesus. 
That's an amazing thing to think about. You are in Christ, and so all that Christ is, you have been placed into. And so you are no longer in the realm of sin. You are in Christ. You are no longer in the realm of death. You are in Christ. You are no longer a citizen of this earth. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Why? Because you are in Him. Everything that is true about Christ is about true about you right now, regardless of what you feel. This is the truth of the Scripture. You are in Christ. Start to realize that you are in Christ and live like you are in Christ. That's what Paul says. From the inside out. You must have heard that 10 million times from me now. From the inside out. And so Paul says this process must continue in our lives. We must be built up. So we should be getting built up year after year. We shouldn't be getting weaker. We should be getting stronger. And I say that carefully because there are too many stories in the church, unfortunately, of people getting overconfident in their own ability and their own stuff. And what happens? They fall. Too many preachers run off with their secretaries. Too many preachers, uh, the books get doodled or whatever. Why? Overconfidence. I can do this. No, no, you forget, even as a preacher, I am rooted in Jesus. He is my source. All the life in my, that I enjoy comes from Him. Best I be humble and realize that day upon day. Amen? All of us, true for what I'm saying is true for me, it's true for you. The preachers aren't exceptions. So, I want to encourage you, as we're going to look at the next couple of chapters, Paul now starts to get personal, and he says, okay, well, I want to help you to see how you live a godly life. And he starts helping them to understand and unpack uh, what it means to live a godly life. And so I want to encourage you in this way this morning simply to say, learn to develop some godly habits in your life. Learn to keep yourself free from infection. There are things that infect you. Learn to be healthy. What do I mean by that? Well, keep away from things that um, give you infection. Uh, learn to breathe deeply. I would use that as an image for prayer. Prayer is learning to breathe deeply. It's learning to take in and say, Jesus, I need you, and to breathe out. That's what prayer is. Prayer is learning to breathe. To be healthy, you also need to exercise well, don't you? Yes? So what is the equivalent in the spiritual realm? Well, we might not like to hear this one, but uh, this is what I think it is. Learning to exercise is learning to persist in faith when everything is going wrong. That's how you develop your muscles. That's how you develop your faith muscles. When you are disappointed, when there's conflict, where there's opposition, how you become established in faith is to learn to carry on believing and trusting God no matter what is raging around you. Say, Jesus, I trust you. In you are all things. And I put it to you, every pastor, every teacher, that's the message we should be giving our people. Persist in faith. Trust God. He is faithful. You might not see it now, but you will. You will see it perfectly in the new heavens and the new earth but right now in your life you persist you keep on and i'm here to link arms with you encourage you pray for you so that you can see that breakthrough in your own life that's what the message of the gospel is and then lastly paul says avoid philosophy and i want to again just uh, caveat this and say i'm not saying i don't think paul is saying avoid education 
I don't think he's saying avoid learning about stuff because he was a very educated person himself. He's saying avoid philosophy. What is philosophy? Philosophy is trying to understand the world apart from God. That's what philosophy is. We can understand all things simply by our own wisdom and understanding. We can take God out of the equation and just say we live in this kind of material world that has been, evolution has had its way with, and we don't need God in anything to understand anything. This is the way of, of our world. That is philosophy. We can, we can come to the conclusion of all of our problems without Him. Paul is saying, you're not to put your trust in that. You put your trust in God. And so he says quite plainly, see to it no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Church history is littered with this problem that's returned many times to trouble the church. And today there are still clever people who listen to worldly thinking and try and change the gospel so it fits in with current philosophy or current non-Christian thinking. And how many times have you not heard this phrase? Christians need to get with the times. You're so old-fashioned. You're, you're out of sync with history. Your views on sexuality are out of sync with history. Come on, get with the times. Change, Christians. Change, change. That's the pressure all the time. I put it to you. Christians have never given into that pressure. From the first century, the Romans killed Christians, not because they worshipped Jesus, but because they would not worship the emperor. They said, you can worship anything, just you worship the emperor as well. And the Christians said, no, there's one king. His name is Jesus. And even if you kill us, we will not bow down to the emperor. You and I are facing the same challenge. Just compromise a little. Just compromise a little. Just make way for that a little. There's one king. He rules over my life. His word is full revelation to me. I will live by what he says according to his words. And the politicians will say, you must change. I will say, I will not change. Because there's a higher law. There's a higher law of the word of God. Now I, now I have no friends. I grew up in South Africa under apartheid. And for years and years, the church even said, the church, parts of the church in South Africa said, racism is okay. It's in the Word. And there were people always who said, actually, no, the Word of God does not say that. Racism is not okay, and we want to see this country liberated. You know what that costs? That costs pain. You know what that costs? It costs challenge. You know what that costs? It costs you to make a stand in your own life and determine you're going to live in a certain way. That's what it takes. Thousands of people doing that, and then apartheid came down. And now everyone says, marvelous, great thing. Yes, it is marvelous, and it is a great thing. How did it start? It started with ordinary women and women saying, something is not right here. This does not align with God's words. I will not change. Even if I go to jail, I will not change, because God's word says, this is what is true. And I put it to you, I'm trying to encourage you this morning. We might face that more and more in our Western world, isn't it? As law comes in, you will change about your opinion and we'll have to say, no, there's a higher law. It's the Word of God. He rules in me. Christ, in Him, is hidden the mystery of all wisdom and knowledge. And the promise of the Word is, of God is, <clears throat> as I get to know Jesus, I get to know all that I need for my life. And that's how I want to live. 
I hope you are encouraged this morning because <laughs> I've done my best to encourage you. All right?